Well, thank you very much, Colin, for not only that terrific introduction, but also for all you do to sustain the conversation about books here in Canberra. Uh, as people well know, uh, Colin is to Canberra Books, as Frank is to the Sex Lives of Australians. Uh, somebody who has uh, brought together repeatedly a conversation that is enlivened, enriched and engaged so many of us in Canberra. So thank you, Colin, for all, of the, all that you do for the book conversation here in Canberra. It is sort of remarkable that it has taken until 2022 to produce a political history of Australia. Uh, that someone hadn't done a book like this beforehand. And this is a remarkable book, as those of you who haven't yet read it are about to uh, enjoy as you discover it. Uh, I'm going to ask questions roughly chronologically uh, and stop about a generation ago, uh, leave the last generation for, uh, for explorations in Q&A. Uh, so Frank, I wanted to start off uh, around the, uh, the 1930s and 1940s, where you would identify a set of really interesting democratic reforms in Australia. And you have this intriguing notion that perhaps some of what was going on in Australia was less homegrown than driven by what was going on in Britain at the time. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew, and, and just to echo um, your comments on Colin, too, to, to whom we owe so much. Um, yeah, look, 1830s, 1840s, we're talking about the period leading up to responsible government, self-government, democracy, uh, you know, at least manhood suffrage in Australia. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, I think the, the British context is, is critical. So is the Irish one, too. I mean... Um, a, a critical governor of that period was Governor Burke, and um, you know he's someone we should all know about because we still live with a lot of the decisions actually that were made in the 1830s. So when you get married, uh, when uh, a grant is given to a, a school, a, a, um, an independent school or a church school in Australia, um, effectively you're still living with that legacy, um, a legacy that basically was about the the formal equality of all of the, the churches, all the religions before the state, um, and uh, the fact that, for instance, our, our clergy effectively act as agents for the state. Um, and I've had one of my own PhD students, Deborah Nance, working on that. So um, Burke was an Irish um, gentleman, a landed gentleman, a military man, Oxford graduate. But what he effectively did in Australia in the 1830s is how he would have liked to have transformed Ireland in the same period, you know, to disestablish the Church of Ireland and, and, and to create the kind of order that we ended up with in Australia. So, but the British context really important. Um, the the uh, Canadian rebellions of the 1830s, the, the Durham report, which really established some of the concepts that we call self-government and responsible government, they acted as models for, for the Australian colonies as well. Um, that said, uh, th there is a, a, an emerging radical republican uh, culture, um, very centred on Sydney in the 1830s and 1840s. It too is obviously influenced by British working class politics, in particular the Chartist movement of that era, democratic movement. But, you know, the Australian radicals also had their own distinctiveness and absolutely central to those movements 
was the idea of moving beyond convictism. They, they didn't want Australia to continue as a penal colony. They resisted attempts by the British government in the 1840s, for instance, to reimpose convictism in Australia. So it also had some distinctive, you know, if you like, local characteristics too that were rooted obviously in that local experience of having been founded as a penal colony, um, you know, as a, certainly by the British as a penal colony in the 1780s. You talk about the way in which uh, suffrage was uh, was extended only to men with more than ten pounds of uh, of wealth, uh, and you highlight an aspect of that that I'd never thought of before, which is that it creates a very strong spur in favour of economic growth, or conversely, inflation. Uh, do you uh, do do you think that there's uh, that, that perhaps we've uh, we, we've been too critical of the uh, the ten pound threshold? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, eventually, most of the colonies—not all of them—but most of them did get a form of manhood suffrage, and then eventually women's suffrage later. But yes, in the early days, it was linked to property, um, and, and uh, it meant that if property prices were climbing or property prices were high, more people became enfranchised, uh, more people got the votes. And, I mean, John Hurst, who I know you uh, knew very well, Andrew, is a very fine historian, um, made the point, um, or argued, that the, the British had effectively, effectively been tricked into giving Australia something resembling democracy because it was a 10 pound franchise, which in Britain would have excluded most of the electorate from voting, but in Australia, actually because of prices being higher meant that much larger people's got people got to vote under that sort of system so yes um, prices the movement of prices does actually matter uh, if if your vote is somehow connected to property absolutely a country with um, a higher capital labor ratio than uh, than, than the UK I guess yeah. uh, in 1854 you've got the uh, Eureka rebellion which I've always thought of as the the greatest Australian story containing so many strands as it does of uh, egalitarianism multiculturalism republicanism you sort of throw a bucket of cold water over some of the uh, the, the Eureka legend, saying that perhaps we shouldn't view Eureka as a, a hotbed of revolutionary activity. You can tell us your views on Eureka. Yes, I mean, Eureka's December, the actual uprising's December, at late November, early December, 1854. Until those last few weeks, I mean, if you'd asked, you'd predicted, uh, you know, where, where, where will a, an uprising occur on the Victorian goldfields, most people would have said elsewhere. I mean, Bendigo had been a much uh, more um, turbulent place, for instance, you know, the, the, uh, the goldfields there that had a, what was called a red ribbon movement, which was effectively a kind of civil disobedience movement back in the earlier 1850s. Ballarat had been a much quieter place, although it did have a lot of Irish, and, and in fact, they became very prominent in the Eureka uprising. I mean, Eureka depended to a great extent on local factors. I mean, um, the, the extent I mean, there were serious problems of, of corruption, goldfields, you know, bad goldfields administration at Eureka, and, and the distinctive character, I think, um, of, of that particular field, one in which gold was quite difficult to get by that stage. As I said, a, a pretty strong Irish presence. So, you know, Eureka um, has certainly been turned into a, grand, a great narrative or a milestone in, in a kind of story of Australian democracy. It's not entirely without foundation because... One of the reforms that sort of came out of the Eureka uprising and, and generally, I suppose, out of Goldfield's agitation was the, the abolition of, of the miners' licence and its replacement by what was called a miners' right, which really just cost a pound a year. And what that meant is that 
um, anyone really could buy a vote, so they could buy the franchise by paying out one pound per year, which was a very low threshold for voting uh, anywhere in the world in the 1850, 1850s, mid-1850s. So to that extent, it, it probably did push along the cause of democracy. Once you had basically every minor being able to, to, to vote in, in, in elections, it was much harder to, to argue that a mechanic or, or a, a farmer or whatever uh, should not be able to vote as well. So it, the idea that it, it you know, sort of helped to, to bring about democracy is not ridiculous, but of course it has been inflated into the grand story and the symbolism too is very important, as people will remember during the, some of those protests we had in Canberra a little while ago. Uh, yes, there were those red ensigns. I never quite understood the, the, the uh, symbolism of that, but there was, we also saw a fair few Eureka flags, didn't we? And it's been used by different groups, obviously, across the spectrum over the years. Yes, and for me that's a reminder of the need for centrists to reclaim the Eureka le legend <laughs> and, uh, and to prevent it being taken by the fringes. But um, one of my favourite lines in the book, Frank, is when you refer to the 1800s and you say colonial governments came and went with a frequency that made post-war Italian politics seem stable. <laughs> Why was it that those colonial governments were, uh, were coming and going so, so frequently? Yes, I'm allowed to say such things and get away with it, of course, with a name like Bongiorno. Um, yeah, well, uh, one of them is that MPs weren't paid and ministers were. Uh, so uh, there, were there was obviously a pretty strong incentive to, to musical chairs because... Uh, um, you know, particularly if you had a fairly, uh, you know, how shall I put it, expensive lifestyle, you're a Henry Parks, it was a good thing to have your, your, your backside on a ministerial bench because you're paid quite a substantial sum of money as, a, as an ordinary um, parliamentarian, you're paid nothing. So there's no doubt that was one of the drivers and it was recognised as one of the drivers at the time. But it is more than that, actually. It's also about the, the particular nature of colonial politics. Political parties didn't really exist they probably, you could say they came into existence in Victoria in the 1870s. They didn't really exist in New South Wales until about 1887. It meant that politics had a fluidity. It was based on bargaining. It was based on patronage. It was based on what we would now recognise immediately, I would hope, as corruption. Um, and it meant that it was quite hard to keep a, an alliance together in, in the parliament. I mean, it was based... You know, government was always based on stitching together support and it was invariably based on a series of bargains. You know, you give me support and I'll support a railway line going straight through your electorate. And you could kind of keep that sort of arrangement together for a while. But if, you know, the railway line wasn't delivered or perhaps if the railway line was delivered, um, that, that sort of alliance would fall apart. And so governments tended to come and go for that sort of reason as well. You do get greater stability once parties come along. You talk about Chinese Australians and the way in which at a time when their opponents were resorting to mob violence, many Chinese Australians uh, were making the case for, uh, for democratic reform. Uh, what was it that drew Chinese Australians to democratic government in, in the face of, of pretty violent attacks? Yeah, so some Chinese forms of social organisation in Australia, and we're talking mainly men, it was overwhelmingly male um, migrants among the, the gold miners who came to Australia in the 1850s, um, for instance, they often had quite democratic forms of organisation amongst themselves. So I think that's, you know, the, the, the emerging kind of democratic system was legible to them in that sort of way. 
Um, they often qualified to vote through through owning a miner's right, as I said before. Um, so they, they were often voting in both municipal and state elections. Um, they recognised petitioning um, as a way, because they observe other miners using petitions. Um, and so we have instances of Chinese petitioning in the, in the 1850s. We have instances of Chinese delegations. We have pamphleteering in English by, by Chinese wanting reform. So it, it's, I guess, a, one instance. And I've got others in there too. I talk about the ways Indigenous people did this too. They, they use the kind of modes of politics and the spaces that are opened up by self-government um, for their own purposes. They adapt their own ways of, of governing, um, their own values, if you like, to the opportunities that are offered by a system that, of course, is not designed for them, but which they can use. And uh, I think there are instances of both Chinese people and Indigenous people doing that. Women do it too, actually. I mean, we have um, instances of women's petitioning around things like the resumption of transportation of convicts, you know, opposing it, basically. And so... What self-government does, yes, it's male-dominated. It, validate, it validates various forms of male aggression in Parliament and all the rest of it, election time. But on the other hand, it, it also does open up some of those kinds of spaces. You pinpoint the 1880s as a period of what you describe as political awakening for Indigenous Australians. What, what was it about that period? Yeah, I mean, it has earlier roots, and we're talking primarily here about southeastern Australia, and, and in fact, really, in some ways, Victoria, or at least the, the, the portion of the country sort of south of, of the Murrumbidgee. Um, and look, it, it, there are a number of things that happen. I mean, one is a long, heroic campaign by Indigenous people at Corrandirk, near Melbourne, just outside Melbourne. Um, to keep their land. I mean, they originally get granted the land in the 1860s. Um, they farm it. Uh, they turned it into a successful mission um, or a successful settlement. Um, there is some white supervision, but um, it's very self-governing. Um, and then gradually it becomes such a success that the whites, of course, want to take it from them. Uh, they want to use it to farm themselves. They want to use it to build railways on. And so you have this quite lengthy, um, heroic campaign uh, right through the 1860s, 70s, into the 1880s to keep the land. Um, uh, they don't want to be transformed into employees of a hop farm, which is what the whites have in store for them and so on. Um, William Barrack, who people, I mean, is quite a well-known figure now in Australian history, was leader of that campaign. And honestly, it was like a it was a well-oiled political machine. He had two secretaries. We'd call them staffers now because he wasn't literate in English. Um, he was charismatic and, you know, kind of had, was seen to have powers of sorcery um, and he was eloquent in language but he not, not in English. So he had two um, secretaries, Indigenous secretaries, who did his letters. They used the media with great skill. Um, they, you know, uh, formed alliances with both newspaper editors like David and Ebenezer Syme and politicians like Graham Berry and eventually Alfred Deakin. But Graham Berry, who's the greatest figure in 19th century Victorian politics, was their key ally for many years. And their example is actually taken up by others. So by the time you get to the 1880s, you have, um, for instance, Maloga Mission on the, the Murray River. Some of the people have come from Corrandirk to that, that mission and they see... 
you know, opportunities to do the same kinds of things. And that area on the Murray, that mission and a later iteration of it, really becomes a nursery for the next generation of Indigenous activists. People here will have heard of William Cooper by now because we've been renaming electorates and all the rest of it. Well, William Cooper is a product of that, that, that place and that time in the 1880s. Yeah. So 1800s Australia is a country which has substantially more men than women and economic historians have talked about how this might have played into the higher living standards given that men traditionally have higher rates of labour force participation. But I suppose if you'd told most people that there was a country in the world that was blokier than most, uh, the assumption would not have been that that country would have been one of the first places in the world to enfranchise women. How did that happen? Yes, it is a paradox, although it, is, it does happen in some other quite rough frontier societies too, actually. Um, but, yeah, look, there isn't an easy explanation for it. Um, one argument would be that in, in a, a society with a kind of a pretty rough frontier culture, a crew culture it's been called, of, of those strongly masculine environments, um, that the argument that women will civilise politics is, is a very compelling one. Um, and, and, of course, the parliaments themselves were rough places. They were seen as places that, that fell well short of proper British parliamentary uh, traditions. You know, and sometimes they did, quite frankly. I would be pretty confident, Andrew, that probably in your parliamentary career, which stretches over 12 years, you probably haven't seen anyone urinate on the floor of Parliament. But that's what John, that's what John Norton did on the floor of the New South Wales Parliament before he could be removed. These were rough places. People, they, beat, they bashed each other up sometimes, sometimes in the corridors, outside. I mean, um, there was a lot of drunkenness. There was a strong argument that women's participation in politics would would elevate it, and and I think that that had a compelling dimension in a, in a colonial context. Um, there are other arguments which are about race um, in a, in a society that I think becomes increasingly feels increasingly beleaguered in the later 19th century, in particular, the sense of you know the yellow peril and and the threat of Asia, China initially, and then increasingly. Japan, the idea of, you know, if you like, bolstering the political nation by the inclusion of, of white women in that sort of way, I think is also an attractive one. So I think there are some aspects of, of politics in Australia that, that did strengthen the case. And we also can't ignore the role of activism, the fact that there were strong women and uh, people people like uh, figures like Vida Goldstone and so on, um, but there are many others, Rose Scott in New South Wales, who, who argued for women's rights and women's suffrage, and that activism was important. I mean, women's suffrage wasn't simply a gift, that it was the result of political struggle. It was also the result of women, such as those forming alliances with sympathetic men, um, which they had to do in order to get women's suffrage up in any parliament. Yeah. So you mentioned John Hurst before. One of the things I remember the late John Hurst uh, talking to me about was that period from 1891 over the, the, the next two decades following that uh, in which one of the guarantees was that at pretty much every Australian election the Labor Party would increase its vote share compared to the previous election. And, and that caused Labor to be quite reluctant to do deals with other parties because if you know you're going to uh, increase your vote share the next time round, uh, why would you compromise? What drove that? Why was it that Labor was so successful over those, uh, those decades following the party's formation? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a slightly more jagged, I think, road or winding road than that one. Um, 
I mean, broadly speaking, Labor does strengthen its position between the early 1890s and 1910, and, and Australian Labor is very precocious by international standards of Labor and social democratic parties in, in being able to form a majority government as early as 1910 in the Commonwealth, and of course it was also doing similar things in some of the states by then as well. Um, that there's, I think, a, a, a relatively... There are a few barriers, I think, to, to, to Labor strength and Labor... Um, success in Australia. Um, you, you have um, certainly relatively high levels of union organisation, certainly in the early 1890s when the party was formed. The unions collapse, but then it does recover again, and, uh, you know, from around the late 1890s, and that forms important base, if you like. It, it, um, a lot of the resources, particularly of country, in the country, the Australian Workers' Union in rural areas, uh, through a lot of resources into to Labor um, political organisations. Well, a lot of the famous Labor politicians of that era who we don't think of as sort of rural figures, like a Billy Hughes or William Holman, later Premier of New South Wales, they're all sponsored into politics by the Australian Workers' Union, the main rural union. So I think the strength of unionism, particularly the strength of unionism outside the major cities, was very important in that, that story. Um, but yeah, look, beyond that, I mean, Australia is a very democratic country. I mean, the barriers to voting in Australia were much lower than in Britain, even in that late stage. I mean, Neil Blewett, former, most of us would know as a former Labor politician, but he was also a very, very accomplished uh, political scientist and historian. And one thing he found many, many years ago, working on Britain, is that as late as the First World War, I think most... Uh, British men still didn't have the vote. I mean, the vote was still... The, the suffrage was so complicated that most men still weren't voting. Um, now, that, that situation has been well and truly swept away in Australia by the time you get to, you know, basically about 1900. So I think the, 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 the advanced nature of the democracy also gave Labor enormous opportunities. Now, they might have been electorally successful, but you're pretty clear that 1910's Labor was, as you put it, a party of white nationalism. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, Labor um, was generally understood as the strongest supporter of a white Australia. Um, but, you know, it was also part of a broader political landscape. Um, the, the white Australia policy and the various uh, pieces of legislation that emanated from it in the early Commonwealth Parliament were very widely supported. Um, Labor was probably distinctive only in wanting to be more offensive uh, and, and less diplomatic, really, than some of the other political groupings. So Labor would have, you know, if you're thinking of the Immigration Restriction Act, mm. uh, Labor would have had an outright explicit ban on uh, um, people of colour entering the country, whereas uh, other political groups wanted to do it surreptitiously via the, 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 the dictation test, you know, 50-word dictation test that could be used arbitrarily to keep people out that you wanted to keep out. So it was, to some extent, a matter of, of kind of methods rather than the fundamental principle. But, yeah, look, L Labor's nationalism was racialist. It, um, it was connected, certainly, to industrial concerns you know, fear of cheap coloured labour, as they called it, but it was it was never simply industrial. It was also a particular kind of positive version of white manhood um, that that um, was was central. You go back to, you know, you look at the cartoons of that period, the sort of symbolism of the Labor Party or the Labor movement around the 1890s or the early 1900s, and it's, you know, it's a sturdy white worker who's always upheld as the ideal, and they'll be contrasted with various others, which could be, you know, um, Melanesian labourers or Chinese 
or, or indeed Mr. Fat, you know, a, a capitalist with a, a, a top hat and usually a great big belly and, 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 and a, a pot, you know, some sort of frock coat or whatever. Um, and, but, you know, it, it's specifically a, a sturdy, muscular white labourer that's being upheld in that kind of symbolism. Yeah. And uh, when we come to the Depression, you remind us that the policies that ideally would have been pursued by Ted Theodore and Jack Lang were essentially textbook Keynesianism, uh, that they wanted to hold back on, uh, supply, on, on paying interest and instead increase the money supply and raise unemployment benefits. And when they couldn't get that through, we got the Premier's plan, which involved tax increases and uh, cuts to government expenditure, basically the opposite of what any Keynesian would recommend today. Have Theodore and Lang uh, gotten short shrift from history for what now we should disregard as, as good economics? Yeah, um, that, that's a very policy want question, Andrew. <laughs> Probably requires much greater economic literacy than I have. Um, yeah, look, it's certainly true of Theodore. I mean, Theodore came up with uh, an idea of the Theodore Plan, as it was called, which basically involved a modest issue of a, a fiat currency, really, that is, banknotes that would not be backed by gold as such, but, but would um, uh, have an inflationary effect. And they wanted, obviously, to produce inflation because one of the problems was declining prices and demand. Um, he couldn't get it through. They couldn't get it through the Senate. Um, they got no cooperation from the Commonwealth Bank, which was uh, dominated by a conservative board. Um, Lang's plan was really a political attempt to outflank Theodore. I mean, it was a very politically orientated exercise and its central and or at least most notorious aspect was the repudiation of Australia's debts or at least a suspension of interest payments. Um, I, I suppose that later historians would normally see Theodore's ideas as probably fairly sound. They'd be less enthusiastic, I think, about Lang's. But it's interesting, when... The, the Premier's plan was adopted, you know, and essentially it becomes, you know, it's supported by Scullin and Theodore for want of being able to get anything else through. Um, it, it actually does to local bondholders what, what Lang was proposing to do to foreign bondholders, and they got very little criticism for it because they just effectively unilaterally cut interest rates, you know, on, on money that had already been um, lent by the public to the government. So. Um, there was a, a certain hypocrisy in the Premier's plan. Uh, you know, Lang was seen as, as this evil man because he'd, he'd proposed, you know, effectively uh, renegotiating contracts. It was seen as breaching the sanctity of contracts, but the Premier's plan breached the sanctity of contracts too. Um, Keynes, of course, supported the Premier's plan. Um, uh, within a you know kind of a, an economy like Australia's, it may have been about the best that could be done. I mean, probably some a bit more inflation would have been good, but the premier's plan wasn't entirely deflationary. I mean, it, it also involved running budget deficits. So Keynes thought it was about right, actually. Very interestingly, yeah. uh, Theodore had read Keynes, by the way. He wasn't. He didn't sort of stumble into it. He knew yes. it. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. You have these great moments of bravery in political life. Uh, one that I, I really love is uh, uh, Ted Theodore's uh, abolition of the upper house in which you tell the story as to how those who are about to vote for the abolition of Queensland's upper house walked into the chamber humming Dead March from Handel's Saul. 
and then a bit later on, you talk about the removal of the, the gerrymander in South Australia, the so-called playmander, uh, by Steele Hall in 1968, uh, effectively consigning his party to, uh, to, to the opposition benches. Uh, tell us about those those moments, and what do you think? What do you think sort of drove these great instances of political bravery? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, different forces. I think in different instances. I mean, abolishing legislative councils was Labor policy. It was just quite difficult to do. I mean, obviously, you would send a suicide squad into the that's what they call them suicide squads into the upper house. Uh, you could only do it if they were appointed. So Australia had some appointed legislative councils and some elected ones. You couldn't do a thing about the elected ones, so the one in Victoria, for instance, or South Australia. But if they were appointed, you could. You could basically just do a whole pile of appointments of people uh, who, whose job it was to vote themselves out of existence. And yes, I mean, Theodore managed to do that successfully. Uh, it wasn't the first attempt to do it, but it, it worked. Lang had several attempts, but of course what would happen is, you know, you'd send these people up there and they'd get sort of comfortable in the seat and the bar's rather nice and so is the pool table and they'd suddenly change their mind about, you know, abolishing the upper house. At one stage during, <laughs> during the Depression, Lang asked Governor Philip Game for 80, 80 new appointments. And the, you know, the... the uh, upper classes of Sydney, the Toffs of Sydney, were absolutely f f hostile to Philip Game because he gave Lang 25 appointments at one point. They knew nothing about the 80 he'd asked for and which Game refused to give him. So that, that, you know, that was very much in, in line with Labor policy, so maybe not bravery in a way. Um, the Steel Hall one's much more difficult because, yeah, that, that electoral arrangement in South Australia had kept that side of politics in office for most of the period between 1933 and 1965. Um, it was, you know, it was like Soviet, really. I mean, basically, elections became almost meaningless. Um, you, you could not go... I mean, it was Tom Playford was the Premier of the day. And, you know, I suppose it was based on a sense of justice. Uh, I mean, figures like Steele Hall, who, who was responsible for it, found they had a lot in common with people in the Labor Party, people like Don Dunstan. They often shared their values. Um, and they certainly believed that South Australia shouldn't be run by country MPs, um, that you know Adelaide shouldn't be marginal in the government of the state. And I think that was really a big part of it. I mean, many of Tom Playford's cabinets had no representatives from Adelaide in them. I mean, bizarrely, this is almost like a city-state, isn't it, uh, South Australia? But um, basically, the, the electoral system was so rigged that um, you know, it was utterly a country-dominated government. Yeah. We're familiar with the story of uh, women coming into the workforce in uh, 1939 to 45 and playing a, a larger role in public life for having taken on many of those jobs that men had been doing before they went off to fight in the front. Uh, but you also tell a similar story for Indigenous Australians and the way in which uh, many Indigenous Australians have the opportunity to... Uh, participate in the economy in ways they wouldn't have done but for World War II. Um, as with women, did that make it hard for those Indigenous Australians then to, to return to being much more marginalised after 1945? Yeah, um, well, I can say I think I saw Tim Rouse and I was very dependent on the wonderful work Tim has done around this issue and the impact of, of the Second World War on sort of the relationship between Northern and Southern Australia, bringing 
in many ways, Northern Australia into a kind of political economy that had existed for Southern Australia for decades. Um, yeah, look, I, I think... Um, <laughs> The changes really were permanent in a way. I mean, many Aboriginal people were brought into the cash economy for the first time. Um, we find almost immediately after the war, um, Indigenous people, uh, what, 800 go out on strike uh, in, in uh, the Pilbara, the pastoral strike up there in 1946, um, and engage in various forms of communal organisation out of that, drawing on you know their own culture. Um, their own traditions of self-government. Uh, we find greater political and social confidence, I think, in the 19, uh, later 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Um, I mean, it's worth remembering that the 1944 referendum had proposed uh, bringing Aboriginal affairs into uh, federal power, basically becoming a federal power. What was eventually done in 67 had been proposed in 1944 in that defeated referendum. So I think there's a sense of um, it, it becoming much easier to imagine the Aboriginal citizen for, for white Australians coming out of the war. And of course, you can do this at the level of individual biographies too. I mean, Kath Walker, um, Woodrow Nunukal, uh, she later became known. I mean, she's a wireless operator. Um, she's in the armed forces in the Second World War. And of course, you know, would be a, a major Aboriginal poet and of course, uh, you know, a candidate for parliament for the Labor Party in Queensland in the late 60s, a, a major figure in Indigenous politics via the Communist Party actually at one point. Uh, so, you know, there's, if you like, one individual biography of the link, if you like, between the war and what happens afterwards. Uh, finally, um, on the on the book, I want to ask you about uh, the dismissal. Uh, did the CIA get, uh, get constructed? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, it's very important as a narrative. I mean, you don't understand aspects of the dyna dynamics, actually, of kind of the politics of the Labor Party and the left in the later 70s and early 80s. Um, without an understanding of the way that that narrative was believed, I think, is, is quite important. Um, but no, uh, I, I'm not aware of CIA influence. Uh, there was clearly a, a kind of security crisis going on in Australia around bases at the same time, and that's kind of probably led some people up the, up the garden path. But no, um, I, I think the, the release of the Palace Letters uh, a, a couple of years ago have answered actually quite a lot of questions that, I mean, people thought it was going to be a damp squib, you know, that they're basically going to be released and everyone would have a big yawn, there'd be nothing in them. But that's not what happened. I mean, it gives us a much clearer picture, actually, of the dynamics of that. We know now, um, for instance, that Kerr had every reason to believe that if there was ever going to be a race to the palace, you know, Whitlam advising the Queen to sack him and him basically trying to sack Whitlam, he had very good reason to believe he was going to win that. And so he's... You know, primary uh, excuse really for not having warned Whitlam in advance, I think, largely falls away as a result. So, Frank, as, as Colin mentioned in the introduction, you're one of Australia's most prolific writers. Uh, you know, in in general, what what tips do you have for others seeking to kind of match you in scholarship? Do you have particular work practices? Um, do you do you start the do you start the day with uh, uh, with writing? Do you have a word target that you aim aim for? No, I'm too disorganised for all that. Uh, I mean, no, I don't think I'm especially uh, prolific. Um, this is my first book for about seven years, which is 
okay for me, but I'm sure there are... Uh, well, look at yourself, Andrew. Um, amazingly so. Uh, I, I don't have a very good schedule. I mean, I, I tend to work better in, you know, writing in sort of mornings uh, more than sort of afternoons and evenings. I find that just easier, as a lot of people do. Others like working late at night. I love writing, and I do love writing... Um, accessible prose. I like writing prose that has a good rhythm and it's attractive. I mean, I think, I mean, my own students, particularly my PhD students, will be aware of just how much I emphasise that in the work we do together. And I, I just think it's integral to to doing good history. I mean, we Tom Griffiths, one of my our colleagues here many years ago, said we don't talk in history and the humanities of writing up our research. And the reason we don't, or shouldn't, I suppose was his point, is because that's not how it works for us. I mean, the writing is absolutely integral to the development of ideas. Um, and so when I write, I'm always conscious that I'm actually doing history. I'm not simply recording something I've already found. Yeah. Uh, we'll take questions in a moment, so if you have them, please uh, come up. We can take, take questions both from the microphone on this side, but also from the lectern here. So please come and uh, join, join the microphones if you've got a question. Uh, do, you, do you work on an outline for, uh, for qu quite a while beforehand? What's your ratio of, uh, of kind of writing to planning? Oh, yes, I do, I do scribble down ideas for how I'll structure a chapter. Um, but again, I sort of find as you, you work that um, uh, the structure will somehow suggest itself or somehow sometimes just not suggest itself. And, and I mean, one of my good friends and colleagues, Humphrey McQueen, talks about likening, likening it to doing a watercolour. And I've always found that a really powerful metaphor for writing because, you know, you, you produce something and it's a kind of a mess, but... You, you work on it, you shift things around, you work on this sentence and that paragraph, and eventually, you know, in most cases, I find that the image starts to come through much more clearly. And so I think I find that image a really powerful one. I probably have used it again with my students, and I certainly find it helpful in my own case. I think just, again, the, the process is so important in, in getting to the, the destination. Do you use a posse of people to, to read your drafts? How, how, to what extent do you, did, did you socialise a book like this mm. beforehand? Do you present mm. it? Do you, do you send it around to a, tr a trusted group? Do you use research assistance mm. to get feedback? Yeah, and I had some really generous help. I mean, um, a number of our PhD students uh, generously uh, agreed to read sometimes a ch single chapter. Poor Emily Gallagher said, uh, uh, said, I'll read the whole thing, and did very generously and gave wonderful feedback. Um, Josh Black, who's here, came up with the title. Um, all of this is a reminder of how privileged we are, actually, or how, how privileged I've been to work in a place where there is that kind of collegiality and support. Um, uh, yes, I had some paid research assistant help with it. Um, Emily did some work on that too. Uh, um, but more generally, it's, it's that... That structure, I think, of, of support and ideas that is really important, I think, for a big project, yeah. What's your favourite bit of the project? Of this? Do you, do you enjoy day one? Do you enjoy oh. being in the thick of it? Do you, do yeah. you enjoy ha having submitted it? I, well, yes, definitely enjoy submitting it. I, look, I often enjoy writing about things I don't know about. And I'm less of a, a, a sort of 18th and 19th century person. The book begins with a picture, my 
as best I could, of, of traditional um, Aboriginal governance. So, you know, if you like pre-contact. And again, I'm certainly no expert on that. I, I got advice, I read around, I looked at explorer journals. I did what I, I could as a layperson, really, to, 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 to sort of um, deal with that. And I, I enjoy that the most of all because it's such a, a process of self-education. Whereas, yeah, if I'm dealing with... Yeah, so I did my PhD on the late 19th, early 20th century, and sort of, oh God, here we are again. But um, you know, you try and you try and give it some kind of new flavour, I guess. And again, for the 1980s, I mean, obviously, I wrote a whole book on that. And the challenge there can be, all right, well, what do I have that's new to say here in this kind of context? Yep. So it's sometimes the less familiar stuff that's most alluring. Yeah. Great. Uh, let's uh, throw over to the microphone here for the first question. Thanks so much, Frank and Andrew and Colin. Um, Frank, I'm wondering if you could give us a, a wider trajectory on what's been called the Bongiorno bounty. Um, we've had the, um, the Sex Lives of Australian and the 80s book, of course, but this is the first time, isn't it, that you've gone back to that foundational period of your scholarship, your PhD thesis, uh, that great book, The People's Party. When you went back uh, to a scholarship that's changed a great deal over, over time, did you find that your ideas about that important period of Australia as a social laboratory had changed? And if so, how had they changed? Yeah, so what's changed since then? I mean, I think we have a much stronger sense of, um, of deep history, of, of, of a longer history. I mean, even when I wrote Sex Lives Australians in 2012, I mean, I began the story in 1788. Um, and, you know, it, it's full of material on Indigenous history, um, but it's always Indigenous history within a kind of a settler context. And I think that um, things have changed a lot, actually, in that, in that decade. Um, you mentioned much earlier work going right back to the early 1990s, and I think things have obviously changed even more drastically since then. I mean, I was very conscious, um, right through the book, actually, um, of just how important different codes of gender and particularly masculinity have been in defining our politics and, of course, I guess the happenings of, you know, up at Parliament House and, and um, in the last few years around these issues of sexual discrimination and assault um, and harassment have have kind of underlined the importance of, of trying to decode, you know, the, the, the broader political culture that contributed to that. So there's a lot of that actually going right... Back. I mean, I think Andrew today or yesterday mentioned that, that there is a passage in it where I talk about Parliament, uh, Canberra in the 1920s and 30s, later 20s and 30s, as a bad place for alcohol. No, what was it? A, a bad place for alcoholics and a temptation to adulterers. Um, you know, it, it had it had the characteristics of a men's camp in a way. Would I have interpreted? Canberra in that way 20 years ago? No, I probably wouldn't have. So I think we, we you know, I'm conscious of seeing seeing the politics through different eyes, I guess, and, and that's sort of how historiography develops, I guess, Bruce. Yeah. Do you think that... Oh, sorry, did you want to ask a, a question? Yeah. Um, do you think that some of that bad behaviour came because there was always a tradition in the capital city that it was a place where you came to do parliament, but then you uh, you went back to your, your your district? Whereas if you look at Britain or the United States or Japan, there's a tradition for parliamentarians to move to the capital city, mm. and therefore there's less of the kind of frat house fly in fly out approach, uh, and yeah. perhaps. 
a little bit less bad behaviour in politics for the fact that more of the parliamentarians have the grounding effect of a family in the capital? Yeah, look, I think that's, that's true, Andrew. Um, I mean, it was an issue actually at the very beginning of the Federation in Melbourne. I mean, it's often under-recognised that one of the enormous advantages that the Protectionist Party and Alfred Deakin had is that Deakin was a Melbourne man. I mean, he could walk to work each day. The Parliament, Melbourne was the temporary capital. The Parliament was in Spring Street, what's now the Victorian Parliament. Um, George Reid, who was his principal opponent in the Free Trade Party, was a Sydney man who had married late and so had a young family with a, you know, an upper-middle-class lifestyle. And, of course, as I said before, there's no... Well, um, by then there's a, a meagre salary, a small salary for a... Um, as someone who's not a minister, he was always having to go back to Sydney to, to, to do work at the bar as, you know, as a barrister mm. in order to make ends meet. So he's often absent. Um, so distance has been a really a big issue. And yes, for Canberra, um, again, um, a, a major problem in that the distances were so great. Um, uh, travelling by train usually, sometimes by ship um, in the early days from, from Western Australia, for instance. Um, it took days to get to to to, um, to Canberra. Um, it um, uh, you know by the time you get to the the, the 1940s, 30s, and 40s, there's some particularly 40s. There's some use of planes, but it's still you know the train is the standard way you get around. I mean, it was John Curtin, I think, took a decision when the first two women were elected in 1943, Dorothy Tangney and. Enid Lyons, that, that they'd, be, they'd fly. He decided they would come in by plane um, rather than having days in a train with, with strange men, I guess. Um, so it, it's, it's always been a, a, an issue and I, I, I imagine it's still an issue for many parliamentarians. I mean, it must be very difficult, I think, um, for carers, you know, uh, to, you know, much harder, I think, to practice federal politics and perhaps state politics would be my sense. I mean, I, I do know a few couples who have done both um, and uh, it's, it's striking in a number of instances. It's probably the principal carer who's been the state politician and, and uh, the other, not always, but in some instances, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only exception to it was during the COVID lockdown in which a whole lot of uh, Morrison, Scott Morrison's ministers moved with their families uh, and to Canberra uh, and lived the kind of life in Canberra that, say, Kim Beasley Senior lived uh, mm. or Paul Keating when he moved his, uh, his, his family mm. here. Uh, but post-COVID, that was untenable. It would have been you'd, you'd face the prospect of an mm. opponent that said, "Well, this uh, uh, th this this dastardly politician doesn't even live in their own electorate. They live in Canberra, yeah. and therefore need to be turfed out for a real local." Yeah. A question over here. Uh, thanks, Andrew, and, and thanks, Frank, for the book. Um, just based on your earlier comment about the early 1800s and the role of. Um, British politics in informing what was happening in Australia. I was wondering if you could maybe speak more broadly about that that dialogue between the globe and maybe, I guess, in Australia context, particularly the Anglosphere and our politics. How much are we, you know, having naturally organic politics happening here and how much is it, you know, on the tides of, of the domestic politics of, of the world? Yeah, thanks. It's a really good question. I mean, the Britishness of the system is, particularly in the 19th century, I think, so taken for granted that people... It's almost not discussed. Um, 
When, you know, it was revealed recently that Scott Morrison had taken five ministries in secret, um, I went into the classroom with my students here. A lot of this book, by the way, comes very much out of the experience of teaching here at, at the ANU too. And I went in and uh, I don't know what the class was supposed to be doing was, but I just said to them, so what was wrong with that? What did you do wrong? Because I was interested whether they'd be able to do it. And of course, it wasn't that he took five ministries. I mean, you take many ministries as you like. Um, it, it was that it was done in secret. And so it breached a, a really fundamental principle of Westminster parliamentary democracy. So it, it's not necessarily something that's in bl the black and white of the federal constitution. It's actually a set of long-standing conventions and practices that are fundamentally derived from Britain. And that's what he did wrong. Um, and that's one of the reasons why this book doesn't begin in 1900, 1901, I mean, when, you know, I tell people, oh, I'm working on political history of Australia, oh, you're starting with Federation, are you? Or you're starting with 1901? Well, I very deliberately didn't do that because I think so much of the system was actually fixed by the time we get to 1901. And, and you know, um, implicit and occasionally explicit in constitution-making in the 1890s is, is that it, it's going to be based on, um, you know, kind of Westminster conventions, Westminster parliamentary government of a, of a type that has been already pretty well established in Australia uh, in the colonies by 1860. And so, you know, that British aspect, the fact that bicameralism is taken for granted, except by the Labor Party later when it, it, it turns against it. But, you know, in, in terms of actually crafting the system, um, bicameralism is take, more or less taken for granted in the 1840s and 1850s. And again, that's an aspect of, of the way in which Britain is seen as, as the fundamental model. Um, uh, you know, William Wentworth famously even came up with the idea of an Australian nobility to populate the upper house of the New South Wales Parliament, which Daniel Dennehy, a local, like a native-born Australian Republican, you know, famously lampooned as, as the Bunyip aristocracy. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Wentworth was actually grappling with a real problem. Um, everyone assumed the system was going to be bicameral, but if it's bicameral and Australia is going to have vote, it's not. It doesn't have a, a an aristocracy. How are we going to fill the upper house? So he was actually grappling with with a with a real problem, um, and and the problem derived from the fact that everyone assumed the system was fundamentally British, but they knew it couldn't be just like the British one. It had to be adapted. Mm. Okay. Uh, Frank, who do you think was the Greatest prime minister in Australia's history? <laughs> Thanks. The, the worst? Oh, the worst. The most overrated or the most underrated? Yeah. And you can you can define greatest and worst any way you want. You could you could substitute effective, least effective if you're more comfortable with yeah. that. Gosh. That's that's a really tough question, Dane. Um, yeah. Now okay. Uh, Greatest. Well, look, I am going. I, I don't know if he was quite the greatest, but I'm going to say that my estimation of John Curtin has gone up enormously in writing this book, um, because I'd always been a bit sceptical of that kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, idealisation of of of, of Curtin. Um, but when I looked at the, the kind of shambolic party that he inherited in the 1930s, and some of the 
crazies, frankly, that he had sitting behind him uh, in 1939, 40, 41, the fact that he was able to, to sort of weld that into an effective wartime government, I think, says a great deal about his gifts of management. Um, so I, I, my, my estimation of Curtin is now much higher than it was, I think, when I did this. The worst, yeah, look, I, I still think Tony Abbott's probably the worst. Um, and I say that advisedly. I mean, I don't say it out of any, any sort of, you know, animus. Um, I don't say it out of animus, but, uh, you know, I'm, I think to squander, a, a, what, a 30-seat majority um, in, t well, it wasn't even two years, was it, really? Um, and, and to be thrown out um, as, as leader in, in such a short period of time suggests just, a, a, frankly, an incapacity, um, you know. So, I mean, who could possibly have predicted that he'd be gone in, in two years when, at, after that landslide um, at the 2013 election? And... You know, it was a period also, I think, bereft of any reasonable legacy. I mean, 2014 budget was, a, I mean, really one of the greatest political miscalculations, I think, in, in, in certainly recent Australian history. Um, uh, underrated and, and overrated. Um, look, I've never been a great fan of Alfred Deakin. Um, I know many people would regard him as perhaps our greatest and most creative Prime Minister. I've always found him a bit slippery. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I think he was skilled, politically skilled um, in a lot of ways, dealing with what was effectively a three-party system. Um, but, yeah, I, I've, I've not regarded, I have to say, Deacon or even the Deaconite legacy, I think, as in, in quite the positive terms, I think, that, that some historians have. So that's overrated. Um, underrated? Hmm... Um, that's a very good question. Well, okay, underrated. Um, look, I'd, I'd probably say... Well, Patrick Mullins is here. Is Billy McMahon underrated, Patrick? Um, <laughs> it, it's certainly true that, that you know, you look at the, the legacy of, of even a short and, and unsuccessful prime ministership like that, and it's rather better than some we've had in recent years. But... Um, I mean, I've been very struck by the, the utter transformation in the, the reputation of Gough Whitlam in my lifetime. Um, I mean, in the 19... I mean, Andrew, you'd be old enough to remember this. I mean, in the 1980s, the rep, Whitlam's reputation, the reputation of that government, was very poor. Um, uh, the, the Hawke government was forever distancing itself from Whitlam, particularly in terms of economic management. But we now look back on that, and it looks like a much more uh, positive and enduring legacy than, than I think we thought back then. So, I mean, I don't think you could say Whitlam's underrated, um, but I think the, the striking transformation in his reputation uh, over a, a, the course of about 30-odd, 40 years, um, I think says a lot, not, not just about Whitlam government, but about what's happened to our politics, because the contrast is obviously with the, you know, some, the much less productive uh, um, governments, I think, that we've generally had since um, at least uh, the 1990s. But maybe we're moving into much more happier, well, much happier territory, Andrew. Let's hope so. Yeah. I think that is a fabulous answer to end on, Frank. <laughs> uh, it should be said, though, in, in Tony Abbott's defence, that he has given Australians a good reason to use the word anti-disestablishmentarian. <laughs> uh, Ray is now going to, uh, to offer the vo vote of thanks for uh, your wonderful book tonight. 
thank you, Frank. I have five thank yous to make as, as my, in my five minutes. Um, the first one, of course, is to Frank for writing yet again another wonderful book that addresses big themes in Australian history. Um, you've done sex, you've done politics. I'm wondering whether you're going to go, where you're going to go next. Are you going to do religion? Religion, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but also, um, thank you, Frank, for doing what we hope at the Australian National Universities our academics will do, which is address really important um, topics that are of significance to the nation uh, and beyond, I would suggest. And this book certainly falls in that category. But also, more broadly, just being you know, a courageous, um, considered and thought-provoking commentator on so many things in the public arena in very many ways, as we've heard from Twitter, through, <coughs> sorry, through to um, learned articles and um, media interventions. Um, and Frank also, I would add, is just the consummate um, citizen in the university. He's such a generous um, colleague. Um, he mentors people. You've heard how he um, involves his PhD students, but that extends to his undergraduate students and his colleagues across the campus, to his discipline more generally. Um, I've seen him, because I'm a historian as well, um, in many um, fora where he always puts his hand up to do the jobs glamorous and unglamorous and does them, them well. So thank you, Frank, for being you and may you continue for many years to do similar things. The second um, thank, I would like, thank you I'd like to give is to the voters of Fenner for giving us <laughs> <laughs> Honourable Dr Andrew Lee as a parliamentarian. And it's so heartening um, when we see so much craziness and, quite frankly, stupidity in members of parliament that we in Canberra have a representative who is um, intelligent, intellectual and inquiring. And you've seen tonight how much he has engaged with um, the subject of Frank's book. And that is typical, I think, of um, the strength that he brings to Parliament. And for that, um, I personally am very grateful, Andrew. Um, my third vote is, uh, my third thank you is to Andrew personally. Um, he has taken time out of his busy schedule. Um, whenever he's invited to come to the ANU to contribute, he was a professor of economics here at the ANU before he went into parliament. And perhaps one day we may see you here again, Andrew. <laughs> my fourth thank you is to you, the audience. Thank you for coming out. It's always great to be at these sessions because it always attracts um, a really interested audience and you can tell the attention that you give to our speakers. And thank you particularly to those people who asked um, those thought-provoking questions this evening. And finally, of course, um, my biggest thank you is, as always, to Colin Steele. Um, I've been in several of these events where I have noted how important Colin's contribution is to the intellectual life of the university, to Canberra, and more broadly to the nation. These podcasts reach out way beyond this audience or indeed Canberra itself. Um, Colin has his office down the corridor from me in the Beryl Wilson building, and I know how hard he works on these events. I'm really hoping that when I retire from my job as dean next week and become an emeritus that the university doesn't expect me to work so hard. <laughs> um, but I'm also looking forward to partaking of the intellectual delights that he continues to provide us um, on a regular basis through the Meet the Author series. So please join me in thanking our speakers and Colin.